in any good story, there are certain aspects that have to be understood, right? You got to understand your setting. You got to understand your conflict. You got to, you know, know that moment of the climax in the story. You got to know your resolution. I mean, you know, kind of basic things about storytelling. When when we open up the Bible, you realize God is telling His story, and it's His story. He's in control of it. He's the one that's going to make it all work, and. So when we get to the early parts of Scripture, we see the setting. What he wants us to understand about ourselves, about him, about the world that we live in. But what a lot of times we miss, even early on, you know, how many times do you miss certain things in movies until you go back and watch it again? And you're like, oh, you know, they made it so clear early in the movie, and I missed it the first time. And, you know, I just didn't pick up on it. And then later you see the, you know, the, the, the storyteller, how they kind of wove certain themes throughout the entire story. And it becomes clear later on. Well, God has done the exact same thing with history. Now, that's the great thing here is that we're not just talking about a story. We're talking about existence. And God has woven his themes that he wants us to understand. He has woven his themes that make his story the most amazing story that we will ever know throughout all of Scripture. And when we learn to pick up on it, we, we learn that from the very beginning, man is on the road to redemption. That's what this is about. Because we, we look in the book of Genesis, and you know, we know God creates the heaven and the earth in and, and six days, and it's, it's wonderful, and he creates man in his own image. And then he says it's not good for man to be alone, and he takes a rib from, from Adam, and he creates Eve, and he breathes Eve to Adam, and he says, yes, God, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, it's good job. You know, he's, he's very impressed. And... It says in Scripture that it was all good. Now, how long does this good last? Two chapters. I don't know. That's, that's just two chapters of this entire story that God is telling is everything, in a sense, okay. Why? Because, well, one, we, we just blew it. But two... It'd be kind of a boring story if everything just stopped there. Now, it would have been a lot better for all of us. I mean, the, you know, the world wouldn't have been plunged into darkness and all of that. And, but it would have been a much different story, and it would have been very short. God created the world, and mankind obeyed, and it was all good. We wouldn't have needed the Bible because we'd still be, you know, enjoying that. But unfortunately, what happened? Well, we're going to look at that today. To understand the problem that has been given. What is the problem? Is the problem that God created an imperfect world? No. What is the problem? Sin and separation. That is the problem. That is mankind's deepest problem. It is our deepest need. It, it is everything goes back to sin and separation from God. And not just from God, as we're going to see. But sin explains all of the problems in our world. 
the sin nature that we have all inherited from Adam and Eve explains everything. And if we misdiagnose the problem, then we can't really understand the fix later on. You know, I heard a story once of a, a missionary doctor who went into a, a pretty deep, you know, kind of a, a jungle tribe. And they were, they were doing their work there. And this tribe didn't have, you know, modern medicine in, in a sense. And some infections were starting to kind of rage through uh, the area. And it was just infections like strep throat and things. But, you know, we know that if stuff like that goes untreated, it can become lethal. And several people in the tribe were starting to get very sick. And so the doctor handed... Uh, started to give out antibiotics to the people. And they kept coming back, and they weren't getting well. And he thought, I don't understand what's going on. Why aren't they getting well? Until he finally had one of them come in, and he said, you know, it's, it's not working. And he goes, what? How is it not working? And he noticed that the person was wearing the medicine around their neck. Now, the reason for that is because in their pagan rituals, their witch doctor and stuff would have them hang amulets around their neck to ward off the evil spirits of sickness. And they processed that information as to what they knew and didn't understand that they were to take the medicine. And so they were wearing it around their neck, hoping that it would work. You see, if we don't understand the problem properly, then we won't understand the cure. If we don't understand what God is telling us and how it works, then sometimes we can hear the truth and it still won't affect us the way that it should. So today, look with me in Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and we are going to uh, read through verse 13 uh, to start out. And it says in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. 
So the setting, again, a garden of delight. Relationships with no shame or separation, no lack of anything in a truly harmonious, harmonious relationship with God the Creator. So God knows what he's doing. Everything was good. Nothing was out of place. Now, you guys often hear me when I challenge you to know the truth. This is why. Because when the enemy attacks, it will always involve denying the truth so that what we believe leads us to act against our very lives, against what is in our own best interest. Our enemy gets us to act against that, to rebel against our God. And so one of the things we can learn from Genesis chapter 3 and early on is that we can know the process of deception. It is a process that we go through, whether it's deceiving ourselves or being deceived by another or being deceived by the enemy. There is a process that, that happens, and deception begins when we doubt the truth. It's that simple. If we can know the truth, then we can recognize deception at any place, at any time, in any way. Because the truth is concrete. The truth is objective. The truth does not change. And when something comes along that gets us to question that truth in a way that we doubt it. Now, I'm not talking about questioning it and wanting to learn more. Sometimes we question the truth and we can say, why? Because we want to understand the truth better. That is okay. But when I say question the truth as to, we begin to question whether or not it's really true, whether or not it matters. When that happens, we are on the road to deception. You see, the serpent's questions imply some things about God that are not true. They implied duplicity on the part of God that somehow he is withholding something from Adam and Eve. Notice his first question. What was it? Did God really tell you you can't eat from anything in the garden? He knows that's a flat-out lie. He knows that Eve's going to say it's a lie. What is he doing? He's testing her knowledge to see what she really believes. She responds with what? No, we can eat from anything in there except for that tree, and we're not even supposed to touch it. Now, did God ever say anything about don't touch it? No. See, she's already added something to the word of God, if you will. And that's what gets us in trouble. You know what that is called? That is called legalism. When we go adding to the word of God, we are trying to create rules for ourselves that are on par with the word of God, with the truth. And you know what? It just never is. We can't add to the word of God. We can't make it any more effective. We can't protect ourselves from sin by adding extra layers of rules. All we do is create new opportunities to sin. You see, this is the example I like to use. If God's word, if the truth told me, don't step off the stage because you could fall. Okay, the truth is there. We know gravity works. That if I just keep walking and I just keep walking, I'm going to fall. There, there's no doubting that. The truth is there. But if I legalistically want to say, okay, I want to make sure I never fall off, so I'm going to create another rule that says don't come within two feet of the edge of the stage. And I attach a moral equivalence to that, that I say if I now, I start to judge by it, like, oh, you're too close. You know, I can create sin in myself that was never even necessary that if I start to believe in my own mind 
that getting this close to the edge is sin, guess what? It has become sin because I'm now rebelling against what I believe to be the truth in my own heart and mind. Now, did God intend for this to be sin? Absolutely not. If the word said don't step off the stage because you'll fall, we see that is a command that is rooted in truth and in protection, right? Like we don't want you to get hurt. But this is what legalism does is we start adding unnecessary rules thinking we're making ourselves safer. Well, if, if I say don't say with two, within two feet, well, somebody else is going to come along and say we well, should make it three feet. And somebody else is going to come along and say, you know what, maybe we shouldn't even have a stage. And somebody else is going to come along and say, what if the stage doesn't exist? Now, we see this in today's world all over the place. And this is where the, the, the religious people start arguing about the rules Two feet, three feet, four feet, no stage. When God said, God, it's like God's in heaven then saying, I never said any of that. I just didn't want you to fall and break your arm. So I told you don't step off the stage. You see, God's word and God's truth bring freedom, but if we add to it, we start the process of deception already because we've now not understood the truth. We think we can add to it or we, we believe something and it takes away from the truth because not only does the serpent's question start to uh, call into question the goodness of God so that Eve now thinks that God is withholding something from her. What does he say? He says, oh, no, you won't surely die. Now, that's a lie. What was the command? You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat it, you will die. That's the command. That is the objective truth, okay? In, in Genesis 2.17, that is the objective truth. Now notice, the serpent never even talks about the objective truth with Eve. He just lies about it. When we get to the pure truth of the matter, what is at stake here? He says, you eat from this, you die. And he says, no, you won't die. Because if he can get her to question the truth and believe something else, anything else other than the truth, he knows that he can defeat her, can defeat us. And so he says, oh, no, you won't die. And then he sells a story. He says, you'll be like God. Which, you know what, really isn't a lie. Because he says knowing good and evil. Here's the difference. God knows what evil is, but the scripture tells us he's not tempted by evil, nor can he be tempted by evil, because he's holy and he's perfect in every way. He is almighty, he is perfect within himself. We are not. Even in the garden where sin is not present, Adam and Eve were not imperfect beings. Because only God is perfect. And we were created lesser than God. God did not create an equal. He created creation. It's below him. So they weren't perfect. And so he did not create us to know good and evil like him. And so Satan knows what he's talking about when he says, hey, you'll, know, you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. You know what he leaves out? Oh, and it will kill you. And so he leads this question to believe that the truth is somehow I'm missing something. And so he says, you won't die. 
And so Adam and Eve now had a choice. Now, I believe Adam is like standing right there being passive and not leading. And men, this is, this is a failure. One of the, one of the problems for, for men that they have to overcome to be godly men is to overcome passivity. And I believe Adam right here is being passive. He was created literally as king of the world in this moment. He said, go fill the earth, subdue it. Like he's saying, be in charge, be in control of the world. And Adam is standing there saying absolutely nothing while this conversation's going on between the enemy and his, and his wife. Now what Adam should have done is just stepped right in between and said, this conversation's over. You get out of here. But he didn't. He's just standing there. So they have a decision to make. And what are they basing? What is Eve in this moment basing her decision on? Not the truth. And this is what happens in the process of deception is we stop focusing on the truth and we start focusing on subjective conclusions. And when I say subjective, it means you could have a conclusion, you could have a conclusion, you could have a conclusion, and I could have a conclusion that are all different and they all could feel completely right. Because it makes sense in my own mind, and my own heart, it, I, can, I can rationalize it and it feels right and I don't think I'm doing anything wrong, but if it is against the objective truth, it's wrong. But Eve doesn't do that. She does not weigh it against the truth, she simply uses her own judgment in this moment without thinking about the truth. Verse 6, what does it say? It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. You see those conclusions she's coming to? She's now thinking about this fruit in a way she never has before. It's now an option, when it wasn't an option before. And so, the objective truth is, it's going to kill you. The subjective conclusion is what? Hey, it, it's edible. Did God ever say it wasn't? No. In fact, he said it was. He said, don't eat from it because it'll kill you. But, I mean, clearly the process of eating was something that he's talking about. He says it's good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes. Suddenly, this is more attractive than any other fruit in the garden. Now, think about that. Suddenly, this deadly fruit is more attractive than the tree of life which is available to them. See, the tree of life, we forget that it's right there in the garden as well, and God said, you're free to eat from anything. The offer of eternal life was right there for Adam and Eve. And he said, don't eat from this one, it will kill you. Eat from this one, you'll get life. And he told him, you're free to eat from it. He didn't, he didn't command them to eat from it. But he opened it up to them and said, you can eat. Go ahead. And yet in all of this beauty, and in all of this majesty, and in all of this blessing that God has given them, this one thing is now suddenly more attractive and appealing to the eyes than anything else. That's when we know deception is starting to take root when the world becomes unbalanced 
and we stop measuring things against the truth of God and against what we think that it should be or what we want it to be or, or some other standard that violates the truth of God. And then she comes to a deadly conclusion and says that it is to be desired to make one wise. She thinks there's genuinely something now to be gained from it. See, her thought process has now gone completely beyond, and I mean completely beyond the, the, the truth. Again, God laid it out there. What was it? Truth, you will die. It will kill you. Why is it that we as human beings have such a hard time believing God in the simple things? Like, we want miracles. We want big things to happen. We want all of this, you know, God to, to split the sky and, and to raise the dead. But when God has a simple command that says, don't do this, it's bad, we always want to second guess it. And we're like, are you sure? I mean, look at it, God. It looks so much better than all this other stuff that you've given me. This one thing. Just give me this one thing, God. That's how we know when we're being deceived. We start rationalizing it subjectively based on nothing. God never said, hey, don't look at it. He didn't say it's, you know, if you even get in the proximity of this tree, you know, you'll be instantly killed. His word was clear. Don't eat it. It will kill you. Yet Eve is, is enraptured by so many other things right here. You know, it, it, it's good for food. I, I, I don't know. Maybe the other fruits won't satisfy like this one will. It looks good for food. It, it's attractive. Maybe it'll give me something I'm missing. And now she's doubting the goodness of God. Now she wants something that could literally never be. It doesn't exist. She's now chasing a phantom, and that is equality with God. She believed the serpent's lie that you will not die, and then she filled in the blank of what it means to be like God, knowing good and evil, and it's a bad, bad conclusion. And so what does she do? She eats. She eats. And immediately then she gives it to, to Adam, her husband. He eats from it. And, you know, i got to wonder. Now, Adam, again, he's just being quiet and doing absolutely nothing. So apparently he's worthless in this moment. But Eve had in her mind, again, a legalistic rule that she had set up, or maybe Adam set it up for her, we don't know, of don't touch it. So do you think in that moment when she grabbed the fruit and touched it and didn't die, that she thought maybe God's wrong. When God never said anything about don't touch it. Do you see how you could make that leap of logic when we have legalistic rules about things that, that suddenly we cross over into that and in our own heart we're rebelling against what we think is the truth. We're rebelling against what we think is God, but God's like, that's not my command, that's yours. That's your nonsense. And then we step into it and we're like, wait a minute, the world didn't end. Maybe there's not some, you know, maybe God doesn't know what he's talking about. Maybe this isn't all true. Maybe it's all just, just garbage. And God's like, no, I told you don't step off the stage. You're like, you know what, I don't believe it. And then they step off the stage and they get hurt. And then they shake their fist at God and say, how dare you? 
And God's like, um, yeah, you did that yourself. I told you don't step off the stage. I never told you not to get within a foot of it. I didn't, I didn't tell you to question the validity of having a stage. I didn't do any of that. I just told you don't step off because gravity will hurt you. But you weren't focused on the truth. You were focused on your own system, your own rationalizations, and you deceived yourself. And so when this happens, we have to then know the consequences of sin. It's real. There are real consequences of sin. Okay, I want you to listen uh, again. What happened? It says, he gave it to her husband, verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Everything changed in a moment. Now, did they die instantly? No, and God didn't say that would happen, but a death did occur. And they would ultimately experience physical death because of it. You see, God's word, you know, let God be proven true and every man a liar. Because God's word will always bear itself out to be true in the long run. Every time, every time. But what happened? Sin causes separation. And it's a separation from all that is good. All that is good, okay? They were separated, one, from themselves. This is something we don't understand a lot of times. They were separated from themselves. We read in, in, in Genesis 2, it says, And they were both no, naked and felt no shame in the presence of each other, Adam and Eve. Immediately, when their eyes are opened, what do they do? They become ashamed of themselves. They become ashamed of their very identity before each other. They are separated from themselves. Suddenly, they don't see themselves as part of God's good creation. They see themselves as something to be hidden. And this is a change that, that is still here this day. Okay, that's one of the things we got to understand. That is part of the problem is there's no undoing it. In this world now, there is no one doing it. Every single one of us struggles with identity issues at some point. Adam no longer knew who he was. Eve no longer knew who she was within creation and in relation to God, in relation to each other, and even within her own mind. She didn't know, he didn't know who they were anymore. Instead of confidence, there was fear. There was shame. They were separated from themselves. Two, they were separated from their community. Now, you may say, what community? It's just Adam and Eve. Look, two people are a community. A husband and wife is the most intimate community you're going to have. And what did they do? They separated from each other. You see, it's not being... The, the, the Bible is, is not just being cute when it talks about that there was no shame in their nakedness in Genesis 2. And then suddenly, immediately, they're like, we've got to cover up. We've got to separate from each other. I'm, I'm ashamed of myself, and I have to cover my shame in front of you. 
this person that just before Adam was praising God and saying, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Yes, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. I mean, he got it and he's like, God, you are amazing. This relationship that you have created is amazing. And then the Bible says, and they were naked and felt no shame, that this is a oneness that, that only God could create. And immediately, they're like, don't look at me. They eat and suddenly say, don't look at me. And they cover themselves. They're separated from their community. And then finally, they are separated from God. You know, I don't know what this would have looked like when it talks about in the cool of the day, God would like come down and just chat. Wouldn't that be amazing? You know, you've done your work. I mean, remember, Adam was put in the garden to, to tend it and to keep it so he had work to do. And so he does his work during the day. Now, I don't, you know, the ground isn't cursed yet and his work isn't cursed yet. And so in the garden, apparently you like plant a tree and watch it grow. And it's like, look, look what I did. You know, it like works perfectly. Everything worked like it was supposed to. And so apparently there wasn't the struggle, but there was still work to do. And so then you finish your work and God comes down. He's like, what'd you do today? Oh, look, I planted these trees and I did this. Good job. What are you going to do tomorrow? Well, I, I thought I'd build a house. Cool. Use the wood. It's good for that. I, I don't know what this conversation would have been like, but apparently this is something that happened. Is God to just show up and it's like Adam and Eve, hey, let's just sit down for tea and, you know, let's chat in the evening. And so as was customary, God starts showing up and what do they do? They hide. They hide. And I guarantee every single one of us in here knows what they were feeling in that moment. Because every one of us has tried to hide from God at some point. We've tried to hide ourselves from God in some way. They hear God coming and they try to hide. And God says, hey, where are you? And they, you know, kind of sheepishly probably... Uh, uh, you were coming and I was scared was naked who told you you were naked did you eat from the tree you ever notice how god asked just the right question rarely does god make an accusation he asks a question that makes us admit the truth he does that every time jesus did it he would ask questions that just forced us to see the truth like there was no way out of it except by blatant dishonesty and lying and we see further how they're separated from God because he's like, did you eat from the tree? And Adam immediately, what does he do? He's like, oh, yeah, it was my fault. I totally didn't step in and tell the snake to take a hike. What did he do? No, he said, you know that woman you gave me? Like, he deflects in every conceivable way right here. He blames both Eve and God for his failure. That woman that you gave to me. My goodness. It's a quick turn from bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, to God. She's the problem, and you kind of are too, because you gave her to me. Now, we can snicker about that, but how do you think Eve felt in that moment? 
Here he's supposed, he's already said, this is to be a one flesh, man, we're together. And he's like, not now. No, no, not my fault. You see, Eve is at least honest. He turns to Eve, God, and says, hey, what did you do? And she's like, this serpent deceived me. I I think she's at least honest right there. I listened to him. I was deceived. I didn't believe the truth. I listened to a lie. But you see how much this separation starts to happen. And then we can, you just continue to read in Genesis 3, and it's like a cascade failure at this point. The curses start to be handed down. In verse 15, uh, he, he curses, or in, in verse 14, it says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity which is discord, strife between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire, which is a desire for control that is sinful, shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. This is not a one flesh relationship anymore. This is now a a, a power struggle. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. And in the Hebrew, this is kind of a fear sweat, like you don't know if it's going to work out. Man, you understand that fear, right? You live with it all the time. Because that is the curse. That is the state of the world. By fear, sweat, of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, when I am talking about these consequences of sin, what we have to understand is these curses are real, and we live with them every single day still. They're not gone. This is the world that we live in. The curses are real. Sin brings death. And many times, not instant death, but slow, creeping, misery-causing, loss of identity, loss of relationship, life-draining, existence-wasting death. See, Adam and Eve thought maybe, well, if I, you know, I'm going to die, and they didn't understand what death meant. They thought they'd die instantly, and God's like, no, that's not how this is going to work. I created you for life, and now life is infected with death, and they're going to coexist. And so your life is going to be this continual struggle against death until you die. And now paradise is lost. They are driven out of the garden as an act of mercy by God. It's not a punishment, it's an act of mercy. He drives them out of the garden because he says, unless they take of the tree of life in this fallen state and live forever like this, think of that. What if they had eaten from the tree of life right after they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? They would have been cursed and lived forever in a fallen state. This was an act of mercy by God saying, we've got to clear them out. We've got to have a different path to life now. 
But the consequences of sin are real because we have all inherited from the first Adam a sin nature. I'm not saying we're guilty of Adam's sin. I'm saying we are now fallen and everything in all of creation is fallen and broken. And we are all guilty of our own sin. Romans 3.23 All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know what that means? That means every single one of us has had our moment of falling for the deception where we rejected the truth and we accepted the lie. And we added to the death that is in this world. See, Adam and Eve, they, they had one sin. But it was a ripple that went through all of creation. But the ripples didn't stop then. Just think, now, now sin is just everywhere. It's in every one. And it's not a matter of who's better or who's worse than somebody else. We all now exist in a cursed and broken world of sin that is below the line of holiness. So it doesn't matter if you're on the mountaintop or if you're in the dungeon, you still can't reach the stars. And that is the truth. That is the problem with humanity. There is no therapy. There is no medicine. There is no self-esteem. There is nothing that's going to make that better other than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we've got to stop putting our hope in somehow creating utopia on earth or that we could just fix it all because we can't. Our hope is not in this world now. This world is broken and doomed. Our hope is in Jesus. And so we have to learn to have hope in a broken world. Okay? Have hope in a broken world. Our hope is not in the world not being broken or getting to a point of not being broken. We have to now accept the truth that the world is broken. The ground itself was cursed, okay? The earth, the world, existence now exists under a curse and we are all under it. But even within this, I hope you caught it when I read it in Genesis 3.15. That God already had a plan. What was it? This is the road to redemption, baby, right here. This is it. Everything was great. Man messed it up. And within the same chapter of man messing it up, God already says, I got a plan. I'm not going to leave you here. You got to live like this, and it's going to take a long, long time. But what does he say? He says, I will put enmity between you and that's the, the serpent and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. Now what's the offspring she's talking about? All of humanity? No, one. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Some translations say crush your head. Would Jesus Christ be struck by the serpent? Absolutely. But would the serpent be destroyed by Jesus Christ? Absolutely. This is the first mention of the gospel in Scripture. Right here. Now what does that tell you about God? That he still got it under control. He still has it under control. Man made a choice. Adam and Eve made a choice and it was a bad one. 
And we all suffer because of it. And, and trust me, none of us is any better than they were. You take any one of us and put them in the garden, and we fall for that same deception. I know that because we fall for it every day. Our enemy knows how to deceive us. And we have to learn that process so that we rely on the truth. And so God is writing the script here, and this is the first foreshadow of the defeat of the enemy that is to come, that's leading us all the way to Easter. That's what this sermon series is, is we're going to look at how God moves everything along to the moments of victory. But if we don't understand the problem, and the problem is sin in each and every human heart and spirit, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the story doesn't end there. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, beginning of verse 18. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. That's the curse. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We live in a broken world, and it's going to be broken until it's not broken, until Jesus comes back and there's a new heaven and a new earth. Our hope is not in the world not being broken. Our hope is in the promise of God that one day we will be set free from this. And that hope is found only in Jesus Christ. It is in nothing else. It's not in your marriage. It is not in your church. It is not in your government. It is not in your health. It is not in anything. It is not in your job. It is not in anything other than Jesus. He is the only one who can provide this hope. And so I want to ask you, how do you see the world? And, and, and this is an important question. All Christians, this is, this is one of those kind of bedrock truths that we have to come to terms with. Do you see the world as broken? Do you see it as sick but curable? Or do you see it as basically good? How you see the world is going to determine where you put your hope. See, if you see in the biblical terms of this world is broken and will be broken until God releases it from the curse at the return of Jesus Christ, then it will keep you from putting your hope in anything in this world. Because you'd be like, yeah, no, I know it's messed up. It doesn't mean you hate it. I'm just saying you're just not going to put your hope in it. You're going to be like, yeah, I know it's messed up. You know, I have a saying, if people are involved, it's messed up. Because it is. We're all sinful, broken people. It's going to mess up at some point. But if you see it as sick but curable, this is where we're going to start taking things of, of Scripture, but we're going to think that we can somehow force the issue and make things really good here. 
And we, we, this is what makes us want to make this world our home when we see it as sick but curable. Because we'll, we'll, we'll get all kinds of, and not that social activism is bad, but we'll put our hope in it. You know, if we just get the right person in office, we can fix everything. If, if, we, just, if we just make churches, just, just change it just a little bit, and then, then we can have it. You know, it's, and, and, you know, maybe this church isn't right, but if we can make this one right, then we'll do it right, and then people will really be free. And we get these expectations that are unrealistic. Or if we see the world as basically good, then you'll see this as a waste of time. Why do we need gospel? Why do we need Jesus? Why, you know, everything's okay. I'm okay, you're okay, let's just quit worrying about sin and everything because it's all good. How you see the world matters. And then, I want to ask you, where do you find your hope? Because all of us in here at some point have put our hope in something less than God. Okay, let's not pretend like we haven't. We've put it somewhere, and I'm not saying the thing you put your hope in was a bad thing necessarily. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. You know, if you, you, you put your hope in, in, in something in the world that's sinful, then yeah, that, that probably brought some death. But you know, you put your hope in something good, but you're hoping for what only God can provide out of that? That's not fair. You know, sometimes people look to their spouse to fill what only God can fill. And you know what I tell them? I say, that's not fair to your spouse. They're not God. And they're like, no, they're not. Well, I, I know. So stop asking them to be God for you. They can't fill that hole, okay? Only God can. Where do you find your hope in this life? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. God, I thank you for each person in here. And Lord, I pray... Lord, I pray that you help us to see the world as it really is, God. So that your truth is magnified in our hearts. So that your grace, your glory is magnified in our hearts as we see the brokenness of the world. But God, we also see your goodness and what you have done. God, I pray that where we've put our hope in lesser things, God, that when they disappoint, God, we wouldn't blame you. We would simply turn to the truth and allow you to heal what's broken within us. God, I pray this, this resurrection season that we're going into, God, that you just fan into flame, God, our desire for you and only you. That, God, the things of the world would dim. And, God, that we would find our hope truly in you, Lord Jesus. That the fruit of the Spirit would become a part of our lives, not through our efforts, but through faithfulness in what you provide. God, I pray where there's brokenness that you would bring healing. Where there's discord, you would bring peace and unity. God, it's in Jesus' holy name we pray together. Amen.